Hello, everyone. Welcome to reInvent 2019. Uh, appreciate your coming to this presentation. We're going to be talking about Aurora Serverless. So my name is Shandor Maurice. I'm a senior software development manager with the Aurora team. Uh, also joining me in the presentation is Kathy Gibbs. She's a uh, senior uh, solutions architect specializing in databases. So she's going to be giving some demos a little bit later in the presentation. Uh, really appreciate all of you coming out here on a Monday night at 7 p.m. I know it's late in the day, and you all want to be out there having dinner, but I'm really grateful that you came. So let's start just by quickly covering what we're going to be talking about today as far as the agenda is concerned. Uh, we're going to be looking at, first of all, to put it all in context, what is Amazon RDS, what is Amazon Aurora, um, and then we're going to be going into what is uh, Aurora serverless, uh, talking about what it does, when you might want to use it, and then kind of taking a look at how does it actually work under the covers. What are we doing here? How does this offering work? Um, going into some detail there. Um, I'm going to be talking about uh, some things that are related to Aurora Serverless that we've come out with in the last year or so that you might want to also check out, uh, helping make Aurora Serverless more useful to you. And then we're going to be finishing up with some uh, live demonstrations to help drive the point home on what you can do with Aurora Serverless and several things that are related to it. Now, before we go off into our content here, I want to call your attention to a few related sessions that are going to help get you to that next layer of detail on things you might want to follow up on. Uh, these all actually happen to land on Wednesday. Uh, so there's accelerating application development with Amazon Aurora on uh, Wednesday, December 4th. I won't read all of that. You, you can see it. There's uh, going deep on Aurora serverless. That's going to be a bit of a more intimate session where uh, you get in a smaller audience. You get to interact with the, the presenters a little more easily. And finally, there's building uh, high-performance apps on Amazon Aurora serverless that you can check out. So please take a look at these sessions if you're interested in following up and learning more about Aurora or Aurora serverless. So. Coming to what is Amazon Relational Database Services, well, you can think of traditionally a lot of the kinds of things that you as an application developer might hire a DBA or a team of DBAs to manage for you. This is what RDS offers as a managed service. Now, just to take an audience poll here, can I get a quick show of hands? Who here already uses some RDS-related product today? Okay. Just about everyone. So that's good. Um, I won't spend a whole lot of time then introducing RDS to you. You're already familiar with this. But just to put it in context, um, somewhere along the way in our RDS journey, we, we decided you know, we wanted to build something homegrown, something more cloud native, which is why we built Amazon Aurora. So let me take the next poll here. How many of you are currently active Amazon Aurora users? OK. Still a lot of hands in the audience going up. So. What is Amazon Aurora? I'll introduce it quickly. We won't spend too much time there, because many of you are already familiar with it. But the reason why we built Aurora is because we wanted to offer something that gives you the speed and availability of a commercial database uh, at the simplicity and cost effectiveness of an open source database. Now, what does that really mean in practice? Well, what you often find with commercial databases is that they give you these complex pricing structures where you have to pay for a license for some fixed period of time. You have to pay different costs depending on the set of functionality that you want to use. But with Amazon Aurora, we didn't, uh, we didn't want to kind of force you to have to do that. We wanted to make it very simple, and we wanted to earn your business every hour of every day. So it's a simple pay-as-you-go cost model. Um, 
but yet at the same time, we're trying to offer all of the capabilities and the type of support that you might expect from a commercial database. So that is Amazon Aurora in a nutshell. Now let's talk about what else, what are the specific things that we mean when we say uh, commercial capabilities. So really we're talking about the type of performance and scalability that you might want. What we offer using open source databases as a baseline, we've managed to achieve five times the performance of open source MySQL and three times the performance of open source Postgres. Um, I won't spend too much more time going over all of this because it looks like most of you here today are active Amazon Aurora users. So I won't dive too deep into all of these, but you get the idea. Now, looking a little more under the covers of what's going on with Aurora, and I'll explain why it's relevant to serverless as we move on, the key innovation with Amazon Aurora is that we took the whole storage layer and we removed it from the database server. We, we took it off the, the database host. We made it a highly distributed, uh, multi-tenant storage layer where you don't really have to pre-provision your storage anymore. You don't really have to worry about storage layer redundancy. What we do here is we break your database down into small 10 gigabyte chunks and we stripe it out across thousands of storage nodes and one of the most interesting things about Aurora is that each write that you do is going out to six different storage nodes in parallel, and we're getting an act back from four of them, and based on that, we're, we're guaranteeing durability. So one of the best things about the fact that we did this is the fact that now your storage volume is highly elastic, so your storage volume can grow based on the amount of usage that it's getting. Now that's relevant to Aurora serverless, and I'll explain why in a moment. Now, looking a little more at the way the storage layer works of Aurora, one of the things that we're guaranteeing with this six-way quorum is the fact that you can actually lose a whole availability zone plus one more node, and you still are able to read from your database, and you're still able to write to it. Now, this all sounds great. So why do we need Aurora serverless? Well, I'll explain why. With Aurora today, prior to Aurora serverless, we didn't really achieve that auto-scaling elasticity at the database server layer. Now, what do I mean when I say that? Well, as your workload fluctuates, even though you've got this highly elastic storage layer, what you don't necessarily have is a highly elastic compute and memory. So has anyone here had the experience of running out of database capacity in production by a show of hands? Okay, a few of you, all right. Well, it's, it's not a good situation to be in, right? Um, now, what Aurora Serverless gives you is this capability where at the database server layer, we'll actually add or remove capacity just depending on your workload. So why is this related to Aurora more broadly? Well, what we've now achieved for you is the capability to elastically scale both your storage and your compute layer without really having to worry about it. This is something that happens transparently and you don't have to sit there and babysit it. So what Aurora Serverless will do in a nutshell, it will scale up your capacity and the database will go to sleep when you're not using it and it'll come back when you start using it again. So let's just go over what inspired us to build Aurora Serverless. So as we started looking at production workloads after we launched Aurora in the wild, this is this is some patterns that we started noticing, which was that across our production fleet, we found many instances when customers had all of this provisioned database capacity that they really weren't using most of the time. 
Now, this was most prevalent in these dev test uh, type of workloads that you're currently seeing, where there's these occasional peaks in workload and in traffic, but really most of the time, the database capacity is just sitting there doing nothing interesting. So if you were to imagine this type of use case and you were to draw a line uh, reflecting what you've actually got provisioned here, you would quickly realize, well, the vast majority of the time, you're paying for resources that you're never using. Now, this is another dev test use case that we saw in the wild, which was you know, somebody shows up, they do some development, they run some workload, but again, the vast majority of the time you're paying for resources that you're not actually using. Now, we continued to dig here, and what we started seeing was even production workloads. So this is a spiky gaming workload where it's hard to see the, the y-axis there a little bit, but even here in a production workload, you know, you draw that horizontal line in terms of what you have provisioned, and you realize, well, you've provisioned a lot of capacity that you're not actually using most of the time. So what does this mean? Well, as uh, an administrator of the database, you have to make some choices. This is before the world of Aurora Serverless. So you can either provision for your peak, which generally works, except you're gonna pay money for something that you're not actually using most of the time. You can provision less than peak, which obviously costs less, but it isn't great, because if you actually run out of capacity, well, now your, your customers may be suffering. Or you can basically babysit the database, you can continuously monitor it, you can trigger scaling up and down whenever you need it to, but that requires a lot of expertise, that has a lot of risk. Uh, you risk downtime, you risk data loss, you risk various manners of outage if you go this route. So let's take a look at, if you go this route of babysitting your database capacity, what does it actually look like? So imagine here we are today, you're running on Aurora, You've got your application, you're running against your master, and then you start realizing, okay, my capacity's getting a little bit low, I think I might wanna scale up. So what I'm gonna do here is go ahead and add a replica scale target, which thankfully, because of Aurora, is very easy to do. You don't have to worry about replication, that's all handled for you. But the tricky part comes when you say, all right, I've got this replica, I think it's ready to go, now I'm gonna cut over my traffic to this replica. Well, depending on how you're connecting to that secondary node, this may incur some downtime, and if you're not fully synchronized in terms of your writes, well, it's not gonna re result in data loss in the case of Aurora, but it definitely will result in some degraded experience for a period of time while the cutover occurs. So the other thing that you'll notice if you've ever done something like this before is the fact that even though you've switched over to a larger server, there's a lot of buffer pools and caches and things that need to be warmed up even after the cutovers happen. So putting aside the fact that you incurred this downtime, you've also incurred the fact that, well, there's this warm-up period during which the experience is somewhat degraded. Now, many customers that we talked to while we were thinking about building Aurora serverless, they circumvented this problem by putting this proxy layer in the middle. And the reason this is advantageous is because, well, it gives you a way that you can quickly redirect your traffic to the secondary server without really much in the way of downtime. So looking at this, well, okay, you can do the cutover. What you notice here is the fact that the application has not had to reroute its connections. It's still pointing to the same place the whole time. But the problem is you've actually moved the single point of failure up the stack a little bit. Um, you, of course, could do things where you have multiple proxy servers, but it starts to get very complicated very fast, and you haven't really solved the problem of dealing with this warm-up period that I described. 
So that brings us to Aurora Serverless. Well, how does this work? So the key innovations we've made here is around the fact that we've introduced a proxy layer that is highly distributed, highly multi-tenant. There's no single point of failure. And we've also introduced this warm pool. Now, what the warm pool of, of database nodes does is it allows you to uh, quickly grab a node off the shelf without having to wait for any type of provisioning time and plug it in in terms of giving you a scale target. And this is not something that you actually have to worry about because it's all handled for you behind the request router layer. Now, let's talk a bit about how does Aurora Serverless actually work in more detail. So let's continue into the architectural picture of what's going on here behind the scenes. So here with Aurora Serverless, we have your application. We have your database server. Um, what we've introduced, as I mentioned, is this multi-tenant fleet of proxies that you don't need to worry about. In fact, for most intents and purposes, you can really pretend that they don't exist because you're able to connect to them as if it were a normal database, if you will, like any other database. Um, and in fact, your connections actually get distributed across the proxy, um, so you don't need to worry about which proxy node you're connected to, and um, any individual proxy node failure will not result in uh, downtime for your service. And what we, another thing we've added here is this monitoring service where we're constantly checking on the utilization of your database server. And we're trying to figure out, is it underutilized? Is it overutilized? It's checking across the fleet periodically. And when it decides that we need to actually do a scale up or down operation, the first thing it's going to do is grab a, a replication server off the shelf. It's going to grab one out of the warm pool. This is not something that you need to do. It's all done for you. And we go ahead and start warming it up. Now, while we're doing this warm up, there's no downtime, there's no performance degradation to your primary node. So it doesn't really matter how long it takes. Usually it takes about five minutes to do this. But the point being, during this time, your application is not degraded in any meaningful way. So we go ahead and start transferring the buffer pool, the caches over to the uh, secondary database server. And then we start looking for what we call a safe scale point, which is there's no active transaction running in that given moment that we can't cut across. So once we find this, this moment, what we do is we freeze the workload, which sounds a little scary at face value. But in fact, we're talking about a small number of seconds, and in many cases, under one second. Now, during this time, we're basically transferring all of the session states over to the secondary database server, getting everything ready. And then, finally, we're saying, OK, we're ready to go. The workload resumes. Now, the things to note here are the fact that none of the connections dropped, and you can just continue on with your workload. And this whole operation takes a small number of seconds. In many cases, it takes under one second. And to your application, what it really looks like, there's no uh, errors, there's no downtime. It's just a small latency spike while we do the cutover. Now, when the workload goes idle, in other words, when there's no active connections to the proxy node, what we do is we say, well, OK, the database server isn't doing anything. It can just go to sleep. But meanwhile, the whole proxy fleet is still sitting there available for you to connect to. And the moment you do connect to it, well, we grab a database server out of the warm pool. We go ahead and connect to it, and we start up your workload as, as if nothing happened. Now. When a proxy node fails, unlike the architectural picture I illustrated earlier, it's not like your whole application goes offline. 
because we've basically distributed all of your connections across this fleet of thousands of uh, proxy servers, a small number of connections will drop and then can immediately reconnect to a different proxy server. Uh, most database clients, you can easily configure to do this automatically, so there's no hassle to it. So all of this adds up to a simpler, simpler database management experience. There's just less to worry about. In terms of everything that I went through, while it's interesting to understand how all of it works, these aren't things you really need to worry about in terms of where your database is, connection, is connecting to and what size of server that you're uh, connecting to. You don't need to worry about CPU credits. You don't need to worry about which availability zone it's running in. I'm not gonna go through the full list, but uh, there's just a lot of things you don't need to worry about anymore. So around this time, people have heard a list. They say, okay, it sounds great. How does it actually work in practice? Now, to illustrate that, I'll be going through a few graphs, but to get even deeper into that a little bit later in the presentation, Kathy's gonna be going through some demos to show you a working live version of an Aurora serverless database. So let's take a look here. This is a synthetic workload that we created. Now what are we looking at? So we're looking at throughput, transactions per second. And over time, we're basically cranking up this workload and what we're seeing is these incremental steps where behind the scenes what the database is doing is it's saying, okay, you need more capacity, I'll go ahead and scale you up. Now this is down to the second granularity. So what you see is the small drop in throughput at the moment that we're scaling, but it very quickly recovers. Now, this is a bit of a fast forward graph. This isn't in real time, but what we're doing here is overlaying the previous information with how much capacity do you have provisioned. So what you see is Aurora serverless incrementally adding capacity as the workload is getting bigger and bigger. And corresponding with that, you're seeing these, these brief momentary falls in transactions per second that comes right back. Now what we're doing here is, is we're overlaying your capacity with latency. So similarly, as you add more database capacity, your latency goes down because there's simply more capacity there to handle the requests that you're throwing at it. And just to round out the picture here, I promise this is the last one. What we have is uh, latency overlaid with throughput, so you can kind of see how they inversely correspond to one another. So now I'm gonna be moving on to talking about what else, what else is there out there? Um, what else have we done to make connecting to your database easier? Now, one of the most common requests we heard about after we announced Aurora Serverless was, well, this sounds great. Now, what I wanna do is build a serverless application and have it interact with my serverless database. Now, previously, this was a very difficult thing to do. So let me take a quick audience poll here. How many people are currently building applications on serverless technology at AWS? Okay, getting about half the room, I'm gonna say. Um, now, one piece of feedback we've heard that may many of you may relate to is the fact that while building applica applications on serverless technology prior to now was very difficult if you're using a relational database behind the scenes. For all of the reasons mentioned here, managing connections is, is very difficult because your application code can spin up on any server and open connections and then go away without really closing them meaningfully. Uh, there's a lot of network configuration that has to be done. There's a lot of things you have to worry about in terms of permissions management. So, what we heard was a lot of feedback asking for simpler and easier ways to connect to your databases, particularly your serverless databases. We heard a lot of customers ask for easier ways to get to them inside and outside of VPCs. Uh, they don't wanna necessarily have to deal with 
these heavyweight uh, JDBC or ODBC client-side drivers, and they don't want to have to worry about connection limits or anything like that. So at this point in the presentation, I'm going to turn it over to Kathy, and she's going to tell you more about what we've done about that and going through some demos. Thank you, Kathy. Great. Thanks. There we go. Figure out how to use the clicker. Okay, so the first one we're going to talk about here is the data API. This is something that's fairly new, just um, brought out this year. What this allows us to do, and we kind of talked about it a little bit, or Shandor did, um, when we're talking about those heavy applications, one of the heaviest part when you're talking about a database, and especially a relational database, is being able to connect to the database. So if I have a mobile application, maybe it's a mobile game, something like that, I don't want to have to have a program that makes my mobile application sign into the database, right? JDBC connection, ODBC, it's still pretty, not very light when we're talking about this. So we created this data API that doesn't require any of that, all right? So it gives you an HTTP endpoint that you can connect to, and it doesn't persist that connection inside the database. So we'll go into that a little bit um, further in the slides that we have, um, make sure that I got everything, yeah. Okay. So it's just more of what you want. And when you're starting to talk about creating serverless applications, it helps you do that, right? So I don't have a serverless application, but no, I still have to have a thin client or a thick client somewhere for my game to connect into something. I just have that really lightweight, and so it really does show that serverless, as well as it just speeds things up. I don't have that heavy connection that I have to worry about as part of that process, okay? So my next slide, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about this because I'm going to show you some of this, okay? So we don't have to look at the screen here. Um, let's talk about the demos. So the first demo that we're going to look at, I need your help with, audience participation, all right? What this is is really talking about what we just kind of mentioned, what I just mentioned. If you could, if you could, on your phone, text to this number, and I'll read that out for people can't see it, the city that you're from. That's just a fun little way that we can kind of show all of that information. The text number is 1-478-772-6862, okay? Um, excuse me while I, my screen froze. There we go. Okay. I can. It is 1-478-772-6862. 772-6862. Did everybody get that? I don't want to move off the screen if people are still kind of looking at it. Okay, one more time. 1-478-772-6862. And just send the city that you're from. So for me, that'd be Denver. I'm based out of Colorado. Okay. Okay. So let me go ahead. I'm going to make this larger so everybody can see. And I'm going to switch over to our demo. Ta-da. Love it when technology works for you at 7 p.m. on a Monday. Okay, so what I'm going to do here, and I'm going to go forward. There was the phone number. I thought that it was on there, but it wasn't. Okay, so what this does is we have a little Lambda script 
And it's inputting whenever it gets that phone number, it's triggering off so that it will update a particular table on our Postgres instance, okay? Specifically on our Aurora serverless Postgres instance. Now what I can do here, now I guess I should go into this. What we have with this data API is we now can run scripts from the console, and that's where I am. So I'm in the console here, you can see over here query editor. I've got an editor, which when I first pull it up, it has like a number of tables if you wanna go play with it. My recent and my saved. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna click here. Oh, it's asking me to do that. Okay. All right. So this is my little instance, my serverless instance. When I click on run, if you notice um, now, I started with just a couple, and now you can see where all of your mates are from, okay? So as I go through and I run, as people are going through and updating this, one of the things that you see is you get an awk back, and we'll go into that a little bit more. But it's just a fun way to show that we didn't need to have any kind of thin client. You guys weren't asked for a user ID. You weren't asked for a password to be able to do this. There wasn't any kind of fun application that you had to log into. This just called a Lambda script, which then updated a table, okay? So for a little bit more information on that, let me go back to our slide that has the phone number. But more important, this is part of that Lambda script. This is the part where when you typed in your city, you got an acknowledgement back. Okay, it would take too long. It's not that big of a script, but you know, I don't wanna go through 70 lines of code to show you all of this. What you can see here is a very simple Lambda output, okay, or input would be the way to say it. So I'm running this Lambda script, and this is the Lambda that actually will send you an acknowledgement saying, yep, that's your city, okay. So it's really beneficial when we talk about, specifically I like mentioning mobile games because I think that it is a perfect scenario for serverless, but you can also come up with other ideas that would allow it that again, now I don't have to worry about having that connection, okay? On top of the fact that it's really cool now that I can run SQL within the console, something that a lot of people have asked us about, okay? All right, <clears throat> so let's go ahead and just show a little bit of a demo um, I know that Shandor's asked a couple, is anybody using serverless right now? Couple people, we're slowly dwindling down every question that we ask, okay. So what I'm gonna do is I am gonna go ahead, open up my other screen here, and show you my databases. Oh, and I'm gonna show it so you can see it, sorry about that. Okay, hopefully people can see this, okay. Um, I have four instances here. I have a couple of Postgres and MySQL. That MySQL was, um, that's what we were using when we did the, the texting your city. So what I'm using here is you can see that I've got a couple of, one is this reInvent and one is MySQL. If you look over here, I've got zero capacity units and one capacity unit, okay? So my Postgres, I've gone in, and I'll show you how to do that while this is running. I've gone in and said that I want it to go all the way down to zero. 
So what does that mean? All right. What that means is that my data has not gone away. This is not some type of ephemeral storage that we're talking about. It means that I don't have any connections into the database, so I'm not using any of those capacity units. Right? When people think about dev instances or a particular production instance, that only runs Monday through Friday, so I can shut it down on Saturday and Sunday. Okay? So that's what this means. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back into the console. I'm sorry, the query editor in the console. And I'm just going to not type. <laughs> People have probably done that in demos, right? So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to create my table. And if you notice, when I go back to the screen up there, or, well, one more time, um, I do have the tiny URL of what I used to do this. So it's a great way to be able to go in and say, OK, how can I test this on my system and see what you guys were working with? Okay, so I've got this created. I'm gonna run it. Okay, so it's creating my table. Operation is pending. All right, so the next thing I'm gonna do while that's pending is I'm just gonna run it, a simple insert into that. Okay. Success, success is always good, if you see in there. So I'm just gonna highlight the gets again, that way it's not gonna mess up anything. Okay. Now while this is running, we're gonna go back to what I was showing. Okay. So that's how quick, just in us talking, that create table and running that insert is now up to four capacity units, if you see there. And that's what that ACU means, is that capacity unit, okay? So a couple things that as this is running and as this is growing, and I'll show you, to look at is that if I click here and I want more information, and I can go into CloudWatch and get this, but I can go into my monitoring, and the first thing that's coming up is this. Now this is at uh, last hour. We can look at last three days if we want to, okay? So you can see the work that I've done before. But as it's going through, we can see how it's scaling up, okay? So one thing that I do want to show while we're still running that as well is I'm gonna go back in here and I'm just going to show you, well, go back into my RDS instead of creating a new instance. Go in here, go to my Postgres, okay. So when I look at how I have this set up, I've got my monitoring, my configuration, okay? So you can see here the different things that I can set up and how that is, and that's how you would set up your individual serverless um, Aurora for Postgres, okay? So I can set up the number of ACU units. When I first did that through the console, I can set it up to two. I actually can choose a parameter that will say, hey, if I have nothing going on in my instance, Bring that all the way down to zero. Save me some money, right? One of the things that we would do is serverless, okay? Most important, people don't usually think of this, they think, oh, we want a minimum because we want zero or two or something like that. Also set the maximum, because we don't want it to grow like crazy, and if you just set it default, 
although our defaults are not the maximum right now, but if I set something up in a CLI and I just set, you know, my maximum, then I could be kind of kicking myself for what I'm doing. Shooting myself in the foot, that's what I was thinking. <clears throat> so those are the two important things. Now just to, to kind of reiterate what Shando was saying, when you first have that zero capacity units, it is gonna take longer to get that connectivity going than if I'm growing. So the time that it took from zero to four is gonna be longer than the time it would take from four to six to eight, okay? So something to remember. One of the things, reasons I mentioned that is I had a customer that had a production instance and from nine to 11, they were a college. And so from nine to 11 during the semester, all of their students logged on. That's when they got all of their work. So instead of waiting for Aurora to start that, you can pre-warm it. You can say, okay, I want to start up and I want to start at a particular ACU or that capacity unit, okay? All right, so one more time here we'll go. We could look at the graph, but let's, okay. Let me go here. Now you can see, if you saw on my CPU, it went from 41% to 81%. So what that means to me is that's about to grow again. All right, so I don't wanna sit here and watch, have you guys watch the, the screen is, you know, yep, that's how it works. But just to show you the background of that. Okay, so let's go one more time to monitoring and refresh. I'm looking at the last three days. I actually wanna look here. We'll do that, okay? So there's my first. And it went up to that four ACU. It will start sizing once you go up higher and higher, okay? The only thing, and I can show you in our graph that shows it, but know that we actually are more aggressive assigning ACU in the beginning. So I'm gonna grow faster, then I'm gonna decrease. Now, we're not going to throttle you. It's not gonna be something where, oh, you know, in two seconds I grew crazy and then I'm down to nothing. But it is, if you look at different scales, and even the scale, the graphs that Shandor showed you, that when you first grow, it's a lot faster than when it tails off. And it tails off in a step fashion, okay? Alrighty, so let me go back here. Make sure that that's on there. All right, um, this. So I've mentioned a couple of things to know. This is a little bit more, and things that as a solution architect, I get asked quite frequently. Number one, and this runs into, if I have a really busy system and I'm trying to grow, if I have a long-running transaction, serverless right now will wait until that transaction finishes. Makes sense, right? I can't necessarily freeze a transaction, like we were talking about, to grow when it's still actively running. Right? So it's something to be aware of, even something as far as, hey, if I know I've got to grow, I'm going to go kill that, <laughs> right? Something that you need to plan for. Um, a couple of other things that people often ask me, and there is, if you notice, there's a link down there, that serverless doesn't technically have all the features that Aurora does. So we talked about it a little bit briefly with replicas. So I don't have something where I can go to serverless and then I can kick off a replica. It still has six copies of that data across three availability zones, but I'm not gonna be able to assign a replica to that, okay? 
Um, a couple others that we're talking about, Backtrack. Backtrack is available for Aurora MySQL. That is not available on serverless. Okay. So different things that we're talking about. There's a list there where we have it. If you think about it, some of the things that come up, it makes sense. Right? If I'm not using it all that much, maybe restoring from a snapshot, I can probably get my data from that snapshot instead of having to do a backtrack in the system. Okay. So there's a couple different ways to learn about serverless, and I do want to put that out there. There's all kinds of YouTube videos, but you can also, if you have an account manager, reach out to your account manager and set up our training sessions, things like that, as, long as, as well as being able to go into the digital training here that we're talking about. Okay. So now, if there are questions, we have two microphones that they will turn on that you can go up and ask a question and I'll ask um, Shandor to come back up and let her rip. Sure. Question right here, yes. So I actually have two. Uh, I'm not gonna use the mic because I think I'm loud enough. <laughs> um, the first one has to do with, you're talking about how it kind of scales up and down and it can kind of see that based on reading the current capacity or current requests kind of coming into the server. Is there any kind of analysis to kind of pinpoint and kind of detect those peaks on like a recurring system and kind of scale automatically before that? Um, that's the first question, and I'm gonna get the second question out as well before you guys kind of dive in. <laughs> uh, the second question I have is, is there documentation on how to migrate from the current system to the mm. serverless for people that are currently on the old system? Okay. Good question. Yeah, great question, thank you. So, so the first one was a, essentially what I heard was, is there a mechanism where the service could learn your workload patterns and make predictive uh, actions? Not yet. <laughs> um, you know, th th that's not something that we've gotten to yet. I could definitely envision a world where uh, something like Aurora Serverless could uh, take those kinds of things uh, into account, look at past historic patterns. We haven't built that capability yet. Um, we would love to, though. <laughs> the, the other question was about migrating in and out. Is there documentation on it? Yes, there absolutely is. <laughs> uh, you can certainly find that documentation by searching our support site. Um, the simplest way today to migrate in is to take a snapshot of your Aurora provision database and restore it into serverless. Uh, the database migration service also supports replicating into Aurora serverless. Uh, over time, we want to look at other ways of making it even easier to migrate in or out, uh, but, but that's what we support so far. Yeah, the other thing, the only other thing I would add to that is the first part of the question, which is if you start to notice something going on, you can programmatically set up. So you don't have to wait for serverless to automatically increase. You can say, okay, at noon, we know that normally we need four, so at 11.55 or something, I'm gonna increase it. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, why don't we go over here? Oh, are you first? Okay, go for it. Thanks. Uh, oh, it's yeah. so honest here at yeah. reInvent. Love awesome. it. Awesome. Is there any reason not to scale all the way down to zero? Any disadvantages? Because otherwise it seems so, like, why didn't you always yeah. zero, right? So yeah. I, I can talk a little bit about that. So the question was, is there any reason why you might not want to scale down to zero? And as Kathy did mention, you can configure it such that it will always stay at some minimum amount of provision capacity. So the kind of reason why is, well, the simplest reason would be you want to guarantee a certain latency 
when your, day, when your workload goes to sleep and then comes back. Because, of course, there's going to be a latency penalty involved if we remove all of your database capacity and then re-add it. So what we're at currently today is somewhere in the 30-ish, I'll, I'll sort of average it, and I'm not guaranteeing here, the 30-second <laughs> range to spinning back up. Now, if you're trying to do a page load, for example, uh, you know, in front of a relational database, 30 seconds might be completely unacceptable. So you might want to set that minimum to above zero. You, know, you might want to turn off the thing that makes it go to sleep so that there's always some database capacity available, at least that minimum amount. Yeah, having done some uh, serverless programming, I'm right. cold Right, right. So, so you can just configure it so that you never have to worry about that problem. Of course, that does mean you're paying for that capacity, whether you're using it or not. And of course, over time, we would like to make that boot time faster. Yeah. Exactly what I wanted to talk about. Um, okay. About the 30 seconds. We have exactly this use case, the case in place. Mm -hmm. uh, we all want to do microservices, so you have a service, it's all persistent. But if it's a random use service like provisioning, then this, if, if there is an API and the user Involved. Right. You have the 30 seconds, but you maybe have only like 20, 30, yeah. 30 of this request per, per week. So. Right. Well, well, let me come back to that so that I make sure I get through everyone's questions. We can talk more about the sort of boot up cold start time. It's something we want to improve on, but let me come back to that. Yeah, and the only thing, other thing I want to add with that is that I'm not sure I would call it a cold boot because people assume then that there are servers that are down. It isn't that. It's that you've got your storage out here and it takes a 30 seconds, which is not a long time, to go grab my instance and kind of attach everything the first time. So that's, I, I understand from a, yeah, from 100,000 foot, yeah. Right, if you have a Java or, you know, especially a Java service mm -hmm. function, the first time you hit it. Yeah. Yep, it takes about 30 seconds, yep. Let me get through some more questions here. We can come back to that, definitely. Absolutely. Uh, go ahead, sir. I forgot my question. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, have, I have two questions. So question one is serverless is not cheap, right? Uh, if, if I had my read capacity, if, let's say, my server provision CPU was running 80% of the time, serverless does not make sense because it's expensive. Right. Right? So have you figured out a math? Like for Lambda, <laughs> we have figured out a math. It's 60-40. If 60% of the time your resources are busy, don't do serverless because it's not cheap. For Aurora, the reason why I ask for the math is we have a unique situation. We have a service which is heavily used like one hour a day. But for the rest of the 23 hours, we have a widget which pings that service for its, mm. for the sake of simplicity, whether it's up or not, which goes and hits the database to get some data, right? Now, because it is a per second billing, for 23 hours, I am still hitting per second, so I don't know whether serverless is a good choice for us for such a workload or not. You have an opinion on that before I ask second question? I don't have the precise math that you're going to be able to use for all use cases, but for what you described, serverless may still be a very legitimate use case, even if you're only pinging it to a light extent for 23 hours, because what it will do is it will scale down to the minimum amount of capacity to handle that light pinging. 
So for that period of time, you'll be paying quite likely you know, the cheapest capacity unit that we offer. And then you can either let it automatically scale up during that one hour of the day, or you can, you can go and explicitly ask it to scale up beforehand to, to the right amount. Cool. So what it's going to give you is, is that ability to sort of scale seamlessly, even though you, know, you may not be taking advantage of all of the capabilities. And it's, it's going to, well, if you don't go and take some manual action, it will scale up to handle the, the higher workload. Mm -hmm. But you may want to do that proactively, just so that there's no sort of warm-up period, depending on your use case. So for what you described, it sounds like Aurora Serverless could be a great use, usage for it. OK, we'll give it a shot. Yeah. Second question, not related to serverless per se, but related to RDS. What we also learned, if you use IAM, because in one of your pieces of presentation, you said use IAM as your identity. What we noticed, if you use IAM with RDS, your performance is very poor. It's about five, five requests per second, something like that, compared to creating a native local user. Do you know if that problem has been fixed, or is it on the roadmap for RDS team to fix that? The the specific performance issue I assume you're talking about is the fact that if you want to open up a whole boatload of new connections, uh, right, it, it's not about the performance of existing connections. And of course you can expect that if you're doing IAM authentication, uh, authenticating does take a little bit longer because we have to step outside of the database to validate right. your credentials. Right. Now, what we do is we do cache those credentials. We do cache that validation so that you know, we don't have to repeat that operation. Uh, we are working on improving the performance so that it can handle more scale, uh, more connections, and more bursts of connections, mm -hmm. definitely. Oh. Uh, we're, we're working on that. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. So, oh man, that, that echo is really weird. Um, I have uh, an application that's currently running on-premise that needs to be moved um, somewhere for, for reasons and I want to move it to AWS. It's a mail server that uses MySQL uh, as a transaction layer. Essentially, the messages that are being sent out to mailing lists get written into this database table um, for uh, use by a custom application to kind of display in uh, a web GUI the messages that somebody has to release for their mailing list or what messages have been sent to a mailing list that they subscribe to. But I'm worried about the cold I, I'm not going to call it cold boot. I'm worried about the warm-up period of 30 seconds. Uh, and it, it seems like there were a lot of questions around this. And mine, I think, is a little bit different. What happens during that 30 seconds? <laughs> My Say I put this into a Lambda function. Right now it's code that's running on a server. But mm -hmm. this seems like a great use case for serverless on both the database side and the compute side. If I set a scale down of zero, the database shuts off because there have been no messages sent in the last three hours. A right. message that needs to be written into the database. What happens when my Lambda function tries to reach out? So your, is your question what happens during that warm-up period? Yes. Is it going to fail? Is it going to wait? Oh. He didn't so, like me going like this and going like yeah. this. <laughs> so you'll, your application will open a connection and try to issue a query. And nothing will come back until the warm-up finishes. You won't get an error. You won't get uh, any type of connection failure. It will just look as if, well, the database is working on it. And then when the server comes up and everything's ready to go, we'll give you back your results. So from an application side, that's what it looks like. Um, I'm not sure if your question was, what's going on behind the scenes? 
Uh, well, you can imagine when we're doing a cutover between two database servers, obviously we have the original server, which is continuing to handle the workload, and meanwhile we're warming up the secondary. You know, we're, we're taking it out of the warm pool, we're configuring it, connecting it to the right network, starting up the database process, mounting the storage volume. In the case where we're jumping between two servers, all of that can kind of happen behind the scenes while the original database server continues. In the case of doing a, a cold boot up, well, that original server doesn't exist. It's literally gone away or back to the warm pool. So we're taking all those steps. However, uh, we can't do it behind the scenes, if you will, because there's no alternative. So I hope that answers your question. Mostly. Um, okay. During this period now, where are the transactions actually stored? Well, if you're talking about transactions that have already occurred in the past. No, the uh, no server is up. Oh, I have made the transaction right. that caused the uh, 30 sure. warm-up period. So, so, so you've sent some transactions to the database. Where do they sit? Well, they're sitting at the proxy layer. There's basically, we're accumulating transactions and queries at the proxy layer while we wait for the server that's sitting behind the scenes to come up. As soon as the server is up, we go ahead and send them down to the database server. So they're sitting at the proxy. Yeah, it's something to think about that um, the connection doesn't ever go straight to the database. It always hits that proxy. So what's happening in the transaction, they're just waiting. They're just on pause until they can connect. Right. Yes, sir. About the, uh, say, limitation that the instance cannot scale up while a long transaction is in progress, that is fine. But in a scenario where uh, you have frequent transactions, let's say milliseconds, not, not too big, but is it fair to say that in that scenario, the system can actually never scale because there's a constant influx of not very long, but long enough transactions? Well, if the scenario is about you're having continuously running 30-second plus transactions <coughs> that are always overlapping some of the time, then we wouldn't be able to scale you because we're never able to find that safe point where we could do so without any type of data loss. Uh, in the wild, we, we've very rarely seen those types of workloads. Typically, these are heavy analytics type workloads where you probably don't want to be using uh, something like Aurora even to be running those types of workloads. So it's pretty uncommon that we see those types of use cases where we can never find a safe scale point. It does happen, though, and, and it's, it's worth looking at um, you know, your workload before migrating to something like Amazon Aurora serverless, because if, if, you are, if you are one of those workloads where you're constantly running 30-second transactions and they're overlapping and there's literally zero time when there isn't an active transaction, you're probably not going to get uh, the best out of something like Aurora serverless. Mm -hmm. And is there, is there kind of a best practices uh, documentation on how to assess the workload uh, to trigger the, to find that pattern? Absolutely. Um, has anyone here heard of a, a tool that RDS offers called Performance Insights. Okay, so, so that's, that's something, well, if you haven't heard it, you can check it out, uh, but that's something that you can enable on RDS or Aurora that really gives you deep telemetry into your workload. It allows you to see what transactions are running and do all kinds of sophisticated analysis to understand your workload better. So that's probably where I'd start in terms of recommending analyzing your workload. Um, so yeah, check that out. Thanks. Yeah, I do want to point out that that particular scenario that I've talked about, Usually when I've seen that happen, it's a mistake. It's usually something's going on and then one developer didn't know that something else was happening or somebody run a report outside of when they were supposed to. So it was, it's never been something that I've seen where it's part of the workload, but mistakes happen, right? And that stuff happens all the time. And so you wanna make sure that you're aware.
Yes. Hi. Uh, my question is pretty simple. I was just curious if support for MySQL 5.7 is on your roadmap. Yeah, it's one of the most common uh, requests we get is to support Aurora Serverless for uh, 5.7 compatibility. And yes, it absolutely is on our roadmap. Uh, definitely something we're looking into. And uh, yeah, we get a lot of requests for it. Obviously, in the long run, we're committed to maintaining compatibility with open source, both for Aurora in general, but also with Aurora Serverless. So absolutely. Cool. Thank you. You're welcome. Everybody likes that microphone over there. I can walk to the other one if you want. Yeah, we're going to have to force this side of the room. I to know. Step up. Um, assuming that your workload is predictable, is there any argument, assuming you don't need to read back from your database to batch your, um, your writes to the database, heat up the instance, write everything at once, and just kind of do it intermittently as opposed to just running a lower capacity all the time? Sorry, I'm not sure I understood the question. So let's is say it? I have a workload where I'm processing maybe a couple hundred transactions per minute. Yeah. Is there any reason to pool it for 15 minutes, scale up a large instance, put it all in either from a billing or performance perspective with the incremental back, the incremental back off as opposed to just having um, a lesser capacity? Well, I, I would, so if you have a, a pool of writes that you need to execute, a pool of transactions, and it doesn't, it's not time critical quite exactly when you run them, uh, I would generally assume for that type of use case, probably pre-provisioning a fixed amount of capacity and just distributing the, the transactions across uh, that time window would be the optimal way to run from a, a cost standpoint. Uh, that, that's what I would assume. Okay. It's a little hard for me to speculate without more workload details, but if, if you have a way of exactly predicting what your workload is gonna look like and distributing it across time, uh, then just pre-provisioning the capacity you need and, and distributing it would probably be better. Now. I, I could imagine a use case where the, the writes are all touching related data, perhaps, and, and you know, maybe running them all around the same time gives you some performance benefit. It's a little hard for me to know, though, without actually looking at your workload. Yeah, couldn't go into too much detail here, so. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can talk to us. The thing that I was thinking is that RDS, you can stop it now. That's something that's fairly recent, mm -hmm. and so that would be another way to do it, too, is that I just start it when I need to run it, and then I stop it. Yeah. All right, well, it looks like our, our queues have cleared out, so I'll thank everybody for joining us this evening. Appreciate oh, your staying. Oh, you have a question? Today. Oh, sorry, one more. One more. <laughs> okay. How does the pricing work when you do the scale-up, scale-down? Like, how do you compute, actually, the cost? Because, like, normally when you scale up or down, it goes to the next tier, correct? Like, right. So... Well, behind the scenes, there's an actual server uh, going on, and we call it Aurora, Aurora Serverless, really to illustrate the fact that you don't have to worry what kind of server it is. But we essentially charge you the equivalent of what you would cost uh, if you were provisioning on that server type, plus some premium for the fact that you're running through the proxy and utilizing the technology. But uh, basically, from the moment that your scale-up happens, you will start getting charged uh, the, the equivalent cost that you would pay for that server type behind so the scenes. So since the proxy is involved, like, do you think like, it'll be um, more expensive than the regular RDS, like if I maintain the same level? Correct. Yeah, the, the, there is additional cost to using Aurora serverless, <coughs> and, and you can find the details of that on our pricing page. Uh, what we often find is if you are running these one of these cyclic or episodic workloads that you know, in the fullness of time, you are saving money by running on Aurora serverless because of the fact that you're, you're able to use uh, provision on lower capacity some of the time. But if you have a highly predictable workload and you know exactly how much capacity you need, you're going to do better from a cost standpoint by using Aurora provisioned instead of Aurora serverless. Yeah, and 
Right now we don't have anything that really kind of details that out. A lot of that is using performance insights and looking at your own, you know, it's kind of that it depends answer, looking at your environment and seeing if it makes sense and possibly working with somebody from AWS to help you out with that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us this evening. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great reInvent. Thanks a lot.